one of my concerns about this is yes. two straight white men talking about privilege and kind of, you know, it's, in this episode, it's mainly gender, but some race stuff. Right. And what a pointless exercise it could <laughs> actually be. And yes. even if that's the case, in terms of your and my development, at minimum, yes, what we have, what we have is a conversation between us that other people can hear and we can receive feedback from people yes. who care enough to give us developmental feedback around this. Yes. Hello and welcome to the Peer Podcast. I'm Peter DiCaprio. Today, my conversation with Joe Samelin. Joe is a co-founder of Men Challenging, an online campaign challenging men to directly support survivors of gender violence and to take action to prevent it. He has been working on issues of gender-based violence for over 20 years. In our conversation, we touch on the roles of men in gender violence activism and justice creation work, and some of the tools we use to stay aware of our own biases and privileges. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. I'm excited as heck about this podcast and the work you're doing, as I've always said, um, and always happy to have a chance to talk because I love nice. talking. Um, and I think these issues are, <laughs> are really important. Uh, and I am from New York, so I'm going to talk long and I'm going to talk fast. So you got to cut me off. I won't take it personally. You can stop there. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. <laughs> I think one area that we should just touch on is what brought you to do the work that you do. Yeah, I think that's a great question and an important question, especially in my work. Specializing and focusing on men's engagement like I do, the question of why men care about violence, what is often, but not only, violence against women and girls, it's a common question and it's an important question. And I think as a male feminist, professionally especially, um, I, it's a question I get almost more than anything else. Um, why do you do this? Why do you even know that this is an issue or a problem? It's an important question, but it's also a bittersweet question because the question coming up so often shows that men who care about these issues, let alone do something about it, are still the rarity, right? They're still um, rare enough that it's a double take oddity when you see one. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, for me, again, a lot of this work is about stories and, and a lot of the reason that men get involved in these issues, aware of these issues, take action on these issues is because they've been personally affected somehow. And the same is true for me. Um, I see engaging men around these issues as a series of aha moments, creating aha moments for a group of people, men, that don't usually think about these types of violence and these issues. We have the privilege not to, um, even though a lot of men are affected and victims and survivors of sexual violence, domestic violence, and all these same things. And the overwhelming majority of these types of violence are committed by men against other men and boys and women and girls. Um, Still, we don't see this as our issue or our problem. So for me, it's about creating aha moments to combat that privilege and help men and boys understand why this is also a men's issue um, in a lot of different ways. And so for me, those aha moments um, on a timeline start in high school, primarily my first big aha moment when I was finishing up high school. And my mom uh, disclosed and shared with me and my brother and my dad that 
she had recovered repressed memories of sexual abuse that she had suffered as a small, small child at the hands of her father and uncle, her brother, and, and other men in the family. Um, I had no idea what to do with that information. <laughs> that was just, I, I was just shocked and I had no idea what to do. I felt bad. I, I said, I'm so sorry. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. But I went off to college still kind of reeling from the news and not knowing what the heck to do with it, uh, if anything. Um, and at college, I kind of stumbled on the women's group on campus, the feminist group on campus, social change for women. And I realized they were talking about some of the stuff that I was struggling with in my head. And my second kind of big aha moment was working with them and realizing that it wasn't just my mom, but it actually was other women as well that were you know, suffering these types of violence. Um, and fast forward to my junior year, when I attended my first and helped run my first take back the night rally. And for three or four hours in a room in the student union building, and I'll never forget this, it's SUNY New Paltz where I went undergrad, um, in a room of about 400 people, almost all women. And it feels like though probably wasn't every single woman got up to the mic and shared a story of dating violence, sexual assault, child sexual abuse, daily street harassment and catcalling and and most women sharing multiple stories of different types of abuse, some for the first time ever in a room of 400 strangers. And, you know, I had to take step outside and take breaths every now and then during that speak out. But that's where the aha moment hit me that not only is it not just my mom, but it's damn near most women around me um, that have been affected by these types of issues. Um, even though I know most men don't commit these overt types of violence, we must be doing something wrong all of us as men as a whole, because it's happening at ridiculous levels. And obviously, to be clear, one rape, one assault is too much, but it's happening globally at epidemic levels and has been for a long, long time. Um, there were other aha moments after that. Uh, my first nonprofit job was with a dating violence agency in New York City, a nonprofit. And it was one of the first times that I really confronted my whiteness in the work because I was going into mostly public schools in New York City middle schools and high schools with predominantly students of color. And I was just giving lip service to, oh, and it happens regardless of race, doesn't matter, but not really at all any kind of analysis for myself, let alone in a room full of, of a variety of different folks in terms of race, et cetera. Um, I really wasn't being honest or true to that and had a lot of work to do. So that was an aha moment for me to really kick my own butt around race and whiteness and my whiteness the lens that that gives me to the world and to the work, et cetera. Um, there have been numerous other aha moments I could talk about all day long, but, uh, and you know, I, I think that, and one important point I really want to make when I talk about these aha moments is that a person, a group of people needing these aha moments to help them see the world as it is and to hopefully be inspired to make change. It's the very definition and epitome of privilege, right? That's exactly what male privilege, white privilege, straight privilege, et cetera, is it's the fact that i not only do i not have to care about or see these issues if i don't want to i don't see them they are invisible to me unless i force myself or am forced to and so when i work with men to create these moments uh, communities to create these moments where men can have that level of awareness they can't come back from right hashtag me too and weinstein was a great example of a lot of men and people in general but especially men it was, oh, well, maybe this does happen as much as women are saying it does, right? Maybe it is as rampant a problem as we thought. But 
we really need to force ourselves and lovingly hold ourselves and each other's feet to the fire and remember that these aha moments, as great and powerful as they are, and we should celebrate when we have a deeper understanding of ourselves and these issues, these, these problems, it really is the whole problem in a nutshell that we have to create them in the first place. And it's kind of a strange dual reality that I hold on to, but it's an important piece to remember as men and boys, you know, do pick up the mantle more and more to stand with women around these issues. So as, as we're talking about this, the question that's arising for me is about how you as a straight white male gender violence activist, you know, an anti-gender violence, I mean, what would you call, I mean, you know, what, what would you call yourself? <laughs> uh, Joe, first and foremost, um, I think, uh, yeah, gender violence prevention specialist and anti-violence organizer is fine, whatever, whatever. I'll, I'll review what? the recording later and come up with the acronym. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so the question is, you know, and, and you and I have talked about this before. How do you know, how do you get a sense of being, quote unquote, on the right track in your work as a straight white male working to challenge kind of straight white maleness in a lot of ways? I think that's a key question. I think there needs to be a, a lot more critical discussion. I've said this for a while, and I'm obviously not the only one saying it, but I think one of the struggles for folks who do the similar work to me, which is, is sometimes called men's engagement work, right? Mm -hmm. So we specialize in getting men and boys aware of and then taking action on gender violence towards the end of getting rid of it completely. Um, there needs to be more accountability. This is a bit inside baseball in the work, but we need to have better discussions. Um, we haven't really seen very much talk about the Me Too movement, for example, and accountability for men in this work that commit sexual violence and other types of violence, mm -hmm. because our work, our field is like every other field and community out there and that we have these issues as well. And there are men and women and trans folks and other folks who commit these types of violence within our work mm -hmm. um, as well. And we need to have more discussion on that. And so the question of, how the heck do you know you're on the right track for anyone, let alone for someone like myself, as you mentioned, who tends to be at the... And I'm high... asking, my question is for Joe. Yes. So, how do you know? What, are, right. what do you do? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I may want to borrow your tools. Right. right? So, <laughs> yeah. so the, what, the bigger context, what do you do? The bigger context uh, being why that's important, the accountability piece. Um, what I do, the first thing I do, and this comes partially from, I think, good practices learned over time and stuff I've learned from mentors in the work and colleagues, um, and partially from the stages of kind of guilt and self-loathing that most people with different types of privilege go through at certain points and struggle with in doing this kind of work and being a more aware, full, mm -hmm. nice human being, mm -hmm. um, is anytime I, I'm absolutely sure I'm on the right track, I question that, right? Mm -hmm. Every time I think, ooh, I've made it, I've plateaued, I get this part of this work now, or I get this piece of privilege now, or I get how to talk about race and white supremacy and how it ties into gender violence, I immediately check myself. Now, depending on what side of the bed I got out on this morning, I got up on this morning, uh, it might be more coming from kind of 
doubting myself and self-confidence issues and self-esteem issues and depression and anxiety and other things that play a factor in my life. Um, but um, more and more as I work on myself, both personally and professionally, it's really coming from a place of checking myself uh, because of the way privilege works, because of the way these systems of oppression work. Um, I really do need to check myself. And, and mm -hmm. I think it really is the times at which you're, the more sure you are that you've got it, that you've made it, that you're there now, that you're doing something perfectly, are the times when I, I think you're really more likely to do more harm than good potentially, both for yourself and for others. And so I think uh, that understanding and my framing of it that way and that one tool that I have is to, to really check yourself, especially at the times when you're more sure than not, um, has led to my framing of this work uh, and my role in this work, working with men and boys, is how can I help men and boys do a bit better? How can we all just do a, a, a half a step better at issue X or issue Y, right? Mm -hmm. So the goal is not, you know, to have every man or boy be a social justice feminist warrior out there, although, yay, if that were mm -hmm. to happen, but um, it's to really check ourselves. And then, and then you have to build that support network, right? So it can't just be you yourself. I'm lucky and blessed to have people in my life personally, professionally, um, folks of color, trans folks, queer folks, um, younger folks, older folks, um, and a variety of folks who, again, personally and professionally, will hold my ass accountable when I'm showing my ass on an issue. Can you give me an example of when you received that kind of feedback? Sure, yeah. I'm, yeah. I have a lot of examples to choose from, some which I handled. I've handled more gracefully than others, but I think, so one in a professional setting, um, I was co-facilitating a three-day training, I think it was, on, on helping communities engage men and boys in healthier masculinity and violence prevention. And um, we were talking about homophobia as one of the tools of policing masculinity. Um, and uh, I think we were talking about the word gay and folks were saying, ah, but you know, some people use it just to mean stupid or you know that kind of thing. And we were talking that out. And I, you know, I think at one point I said, what would it mean if we used a different word? Like what if you used, you know, just said stupid when you mean stupid, or if you said it's lame or this, that, the other. And um, we took a break soon after that. And, and uh, one participant, a woman came up to me and said, uh, especially in her role as the disability rights coordinator for her campus said, hey, why don't we not use the word lame for that? And mm -hmm. she explained to me a bit over the break about why not. And, and I kind of knew that, but hadn't really put it together. Um, so I, I thanked her for that, and I asked for her permission to go ahead and share with the group when we reconvened, you know, what she had shared with me and just kind of own that as a moment of accountability. And and she said, that's fine, and and I did. And I think that's one of the ways, like you were talking about, how do you know if you're on the quote-unquote right track or not? If there is only one right track, there's probably more than one. But um, one way to know that is when you're able to start kind of modeling that accountability. And mm -hmm. one tool is catching yourself, right? Get mm -hmm. better at catching yourself. So when people give you feedback, make a mental note of it or an actual note of it. Um, you know, people of color keep telling me not to maybe use this phrasing, then maybe I should start to think about that, do my own homework on why or why not to use certain phrasing or to see things a certain way. And then, um, really learn from that and be able to start to catch yourself with it. And, and that's why this is a lifelong journey and not like a, a place like you finally plateau and get it or stop at, because there's always going to be more that you can work on and be better at. Always do a half a step better than the day before. Could you walk us through what it, what it 
looks and feels like? What happens when you check yourself? What happens when I check myself? Yeah, like what how that do looks you like? say, you know, I check myself. So what is that? What, right. What's that process? What can it look like for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's important because the more we understand how different people do that, like you said, the more tools we have ourselves, mm -hmm. hopefully, and the more connections we can make to other people struggling with this stuff. So I appreciate the question. I think for me, and I, I spoke a bit to this earlier, but um, as you know, for a variety of reasons, I've struggled with kind of self-worth issues, like a lot of people, mm -hmm. self-worth issues, issues of depression, anxiety, negative self-talk, you know, imposter syndrome, all these different ways that these... Uh, kind of self-doubts and self-worth mm -hmm. issues kind of play out for as far back as I can remember. Um, and I say that to give a bit of context to what the checking myself process looks like, because even though I've done a lot of work on myself and have great loving support of people around me um, and therapy and medication help immensely for me, at least mm -hmm. um, a lot of my checking myself tends to come in the form of, and from a place of, still being relatively convinced that what I'm doing is wrong. It's more harmful than good. It's not valuable. And I'm a straight white dude who's just resting on his privileged laurels and I'm, I'm fucking up left, right and center. And I should just give everything I own to someone else, a, a queer indigenous person of color who's an immigrant and just let them do work. That's not harmful and, and just go, you know, not do this work anymore. And so that is, is where my head goes a lot of times. And so Therefore, it becomes easy to be constantly questioning myself and, and whatnot. And so what I've worked very hard recently on doing is trying to parse out when I'm actually needing to check myself in a good, healthy accountability kind of growing way and when it's just coming from me kicking my own ass and just, just being down on myself. And it's rarely one or the other. Um, yeah. But I think... I think for me, it's about just moving it more towards the side of being more objective, being more confident in myself and my good intentions, if not my good impact and, you know, um, actually moving forward with something. And so I see kind of the, the what triggers a check, a question, how I'm doing, um, usually is going to be internal and external to some degree. So a lot of it, unfortunately, comes with stuff I've struggled with and I've tried to turn that into a bit of a, a positive in that I'm constantly checking myself, but not in a way that is um, negative or detrimental or gets in my way of becoming better and doing better. Um, but it's also external. How are being open and really looking and listening to how people are responding to what I'm doing? Um, and that is hard to do. And I think it goes back a lot to intent and impact well, I'm doing something that's so great and I'm being great and I'm doing the right thing and I'm being brave and talking about all this stuff and trying to make a difference. And what do you mean I said something bad or evil or harmful or wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how dare you? You know, nobody wants to think that. So for me, it also then plays into the negative self-narrative. Like, oh, of course I said something that was phrased in a way that's racist or sexist or et cetera, harmful in other ways. And so I think balancing out the internal check with the external cues, right? And then it really is about picking up and moving forward and, you know, taking time to be compassionate and giving yourself space to like, hey, you were raised in a system and part of a system that wants you to fail at this, that wants you to commit harm and just enjoy your benefits and privileges at the expense of others. 
um, and not say boo about it. And so I try and hold that as part of my self-compassion, that, that that's part of my narrative is really like, no, no, that's what the system wants. That's what everything wants. So love yourself. Don't hate yourself and mm -hmm. keep doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, I sometimes mean, it's, it's others, but it's yeah. interesting because, and I'm happy to hear feedback about this, but it does sound like the, in doing this work, because I, I relate to your process a lot. And mm -hmm. so it's a way in which, it's a way in which I've taken the phenomena of guilt and shame and used them as tools right. to hopefully develop uh, in this work. Right. And this like this this way that we're, we can't disconnect who we are from the work. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, like, the, you know, at a very kind of mentor of mine, you know, once said, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with guilt as long as it gets you to do the right thing. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so and this this question right. is. How can I allow myself to have, of course, I feel guilty. I made, I'm, I'm making a mistake and it's harming people, right? I would have to be a rock. Um, right. Right. So how do I literally benefit from what is even perhaps my overly developed sense of guilt or shame without infusing my actions with guilt and shame? Right. Right. I think that's just the hard work. I think that I think it's just about acknowledging it. It's about, you know, it's the emotional intelligence piece and maybe the therapy piece of understanding mm -hmm. where guilt and shame comes from. Right. Uh, what are the ways that guilt and shame might be protecting you or defending you as, mm -hmm. as a defense mechanism? And what are the ways that we can acknowledge that, hold that, give truth to that and still move forward, like you said, without that guilt and shame infusing the work? And I think that's just the, the hard work. I think part of that in terms of gender and masculinity is us as men and boys just becoming better at even understanding that we have feelings and, you know, acknowledging them and owning them and feeling them and giving space for them and then doing the same for men and boys in our life, other men and boys. Um, but, I, you know, it's funny in the men's work, the question of shame as a tool of like intervention and change mm -hmm. is a question, right? Like, what do we do if, if there's no no accountability for men, especially, for example, men of power committing, you know, just ridiculous levels, not that there's a non-ridiculous level, but, you know, men of power committing tons of sexual violence and there's no accountability for it. And then you've got these whisper networks of, of women in the industry all saying like, hey, watch out for this dude. And is that fair or not? Is that legal or not? Is that constitutional or not? Right. Um, the question of shaming as a tool is a big and important one. And I'm of 10 different minds of it myself. Mm -hmm. But I think both internally and externally that guilt and shame are realities, if nothing else, and important pieces potentially of both personal growth and potentially systemic shame. Uh, just, wow, Freudian slip, systemic mm -hmm. change. There you go. <laughs> now I'm ashamed. Um, but yeah, I think it's an important thing that we need to kind of dive in more on. I think part of it, too, to get back to it, we have this, and it's great. This global explosion I mentioned before in, in more men and boys and people in general than ever before aware of issues of gender violence and gender roles and norms and all these different pieces um, of the work I do. And that's a great thing. And with that, we've seen just an explosion also in men and boys wanting to do something. 
including do this work professionally or take action, et cetera. The problem is that we haven't been critical enough and accountable enough in allowing all these more men and boys into this work. Um, and we're replicating a lot of the problems that we're trying to address in the first place. And so I think taking the time to be more aware, be more critical, think about guilt, think about shame. Um, to some extent, I think if you're a person with more privilege and not, and you're doing this work well, we say it's uncomfortable, right? You have to be okay being uncomfortable because we're shaking mm -hmm. stuff up. Mm -hmm. Part of that is dealing with guilt and shame because mm -hmm. if you start to examine yourself as a white person in terms of race or a man in terms of gender, um, if you're not, if you were born and raised in, in this world at this time, and you're not finding something that you did that was questionable or in some way, um, then I would argue that potentially you're not looking deep enough or something's a little off. And so how can guilt and shame not come up in that? And preparing men, especially in my work, to be able to deal with that is hugely important um, in this work, to get guys ready to look differently at stuff they've done, at stuff they're doing now and stuff they're going to do tomorrow and really like help them understand the feelings they're feeling and what they can do with those and how we can support each other as men, um, how we can not put the burden on helping us feel better about it on women in our lives, et cetera, um, is a huge part of it. You know, when I mess up in terms of race, my gut instinct is to go to the like five people of color in my life who are really, really love me and care for me and get them to tell me it wasn't that bad and it's not mm -hmm. a big deal, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and even if they think that, I try and resist that um, urge and temptation for the obvious reasons that it's going to be an impediment to me continuing to do the work. It'll be an obstacle to me learning from it, feeling the pain that I have, feeling the pain that I've caused, owning it and using it to do better. You know, you've talked a bit about language and I'm curious, you know, especially in the gender identity world, language is such a moving target. I mean, the fact is the way that kind of mainstream or general society is understanding gender is changing so rapidly that even knowing how to how to talk about gender uh, can it's can change very quickly can kind of kind of the, the sands are shifting beneath us as we as we try to do this work. How do you navigate that that phenomenon? How do you navigate? How do you do this work in that context? Well, you navigate it uh, carefully and intentionally, first mm -hmm. off. Um, but I, I feel a few different things on that. One, I don't know that the sands are shifting that much more or quicker than in the rest of society in regards to language. But I think because gender is gender and it's such a foundational piece of who we are and cultures, et cetera, that it can be a little bit maybe scarier to some folks. Um, change is always a little bit scary and intense, but I mean, there have been cultures and languages that, that have words for transgender folk, non-gender conforming folks, uh, and, and the whole spectrum and range of different gender expressions and identities for hundreds and thousands of years. <laughs> so it's not as frightening and sand shifting uh, a feeling for a lot of folks around the world. Um, and that's not to minimize the size of the change that's happening right now. I think on an individual level, you just be as careful and intentional as possible. At least that's what I try to do. Um, helping people, allowing people 
to self-identify and giving folks the space to self-identify, especially in terms of what they call themselves, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think is just common human freaking decency mm-hmm. um, on one level. Uh, we do it all the time with musicians or anyone else. When you get married, very often people change their names and that's okay. But you know, in when it comes to gender specifically, I think a lot of people are holding on to, they're afraid of the size of the changes around gender and gender identity. And that can be uh, and sexual orientation, et cetera. And that can be frightening and overwhelming. So you might want to hold on to it a bit stronger. Um, but, you know, we see the same thing, for example, as a parallel. Do we refer to people who've experienced sexual assault or domestic violence as survivors or victims, right? That's another place where language plays an important role. Um, and it really comes down to, again, I use that as a parallel to highlight the importance of creating space for self um, expression, self-identifying, you know, if you don't want to be considered a victim, but a survivor, that's what I'll use. When I talk, I always say survivor and victim interchangeably and usually together, mm. right? If I don't know someone's gender, I used to, you know, say they, now I just use they for everybody <laughs> because I don't <laughs> want to assume anyone's gender, right? Mm. In the past, it was only if I was, you know, uh, talking with people that, um, do that kind of work, work on those issues, et cetera. But, but as I step back and it's not that hard to shift, a lot of people in my life make the grammar argument. <laughs> and that's when mm-hmm. I, I like person on a personal level, getting into the fun of like why it's okay to use they, and even grammatically it's correct more often than not, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think language can both be extremely important on one side and also we don't want to, it can be a little too important at times. And, mm-hmm. and I think if you just, because of that, if you just go back to, how can I be a decent human being with some basic respect? Mm-hmm. Then that's going to be the best way, which doesn't mean I, I do just want to make this one point. doesn't mean you won't mess up mm-hmm. because language is a living thing. Like every other part of our culture, you're going to mess up. I mess up all the time. Um, and there are consequences to that. And like everything else, you do your best to learn from it, take responsibility, apologize if needed and move on and do mm-hmm. better next time. Well, you know, it's interesting too, because mess up is also a relative, like a mess up for one group may be right. the right thing for another group. I remember, you know, connecting with someone. So I use the word Indian for for what a lot of people say use uh, Native American because the people that I've connected with around that use the word Indian. Right. And, and, I think- and so it, it, it really does depend on the audience, but sometimes you can have people that prefer both you know, one or the other in the same audience. I think that's an important point, especially for folks like myself who are white when we're talking about, you know, language around race, right? African-American versus black versus et cetera. Um, Or around gender or around any of these issues of identity. And I think that it's important for those of us that are part of the more privileged or uh, mainstream or less marginalized groups like white folks, for example, with myself, um, there's some, key tips and tricks there to, to minimizing the amount of harm you do. Um, one is to just listen, mm-hmm. right? Listen more. And for example, if you're not sure because of how someone dresses or presents themselves, what gender they might identify with, if any, um, listen a bit and see if uh, a close friend or their partner says, uses him or her or they, right? or gender neutral terms, et cetera. Um, if you're not sure if as a white person, if a friend of color says black, African-American, what they're comfortable with or not, 
then you can listen. And very often the clues will be there. The answer presents itself easily and you just go with it. When they're not, do your best in a respectful way to ask. Just ask. Um, more often than not, and I appreciate what you said because not everybody's the same. I was doing a training about two years ago and um, when talking about sexuality and orientation, um, I was using the word queer uh, because that's something that recently has been uh, is used more and more often in the mainstream mm -hmm. to talk about, you know, when uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual might not cover a full range of sexual um, orientations and identities. And I was using the word queer because a lot of the young people I worked with used it, a lot of my LGBTQ friends used it, etc. And it was a two-day training, I think, and at the end of the first day, one of the folks in the training um, said that when we were wrapping up the day and doing closing activity, they shared that, you know, they were really struggling with me using as a straight person, especially with me using the word queer, which is such a powerful slur and has such a history mm -hmm. of violence and, mm -hmm. and oppression. And uh, I immediately got defensive in my head mm -hmm. and wanted to say, but all my friends use it and mm -hmm. they're LGBTQ. And mm -hmm. I luckily through practice and just, you know, awareness, caught myself before I blurted that out. Mm -hmm. And I said, gotcha, thank you. I acknowledged it. I apologized for you know putting a language out there that was really causing that person, um, really kind of triggering them in some ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked hard to not use it again for the training. And I'm also very careful moving forward. I don't use it very often, if ever, unless it's already out there mm -hmm. um, in the conversation or in the group of people I'm talking with. So I think being able to hear and process that feedback, especially from folks who aren't in your identity groups becomes really important and an important skill. And the more, like I said, it's just moving through the levels of being able to take that feedback and criticism and someone sharing and use it to become better and build those skills up to where you start to catch yourself on stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Listen first before you use A, B, or C word and see what people are using. And if there really are no clues, then you can ask and, and building up. That's part of, again, how you can get a step better, you know, a half a step better each time you do this work or every day or et cetera. It's so interesting because language, you know, it's it's really this, it's really the beginning of the work. And a lot of people treat it like the end of the work, right? If we treat, if we call everything right. the right thing, right. we're all set. Right. And so, you know, being the human being, stepping behind the language, you know, I think that's a very powerful tool and I've seen you do it. And I think it's, it's, it's right. Because it's about how we connect with each other. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I, know. and I appreciate that. And I think there's so much fun to be had with language. It's such a powerful tool in terms of teaching, um, the importance of stories, personal stories and experiences and stories are, is such an important part of, I think, humanity and this work. And I think language and stories are obviously completely inextricably linked, but I think, you know, uh, for me, I try to balance it. I try not to place too much importance on language, mm -hmm. but also really to elevate it because, you know, a lot of times language is, it's the jokes, it's the comments, it's the offhanded comments, it's the quote unquote locker room talk mm -hmm. that is that builds such a foundation for this, if we view it as a pyramid of gender violence, right? Words are actually symbols for something else. You're getting deep now, Peter. Right? Yes. So they reflect our inner world. Yes. In a very powerful way.
Yes. And they reflect our experience of our outer world in a very powerful way. Yeah. So they're important, but they can also be used to deflect the fact that we're human beings Absolutely. that connect and oppress and, and reject and, and harm and help each other. And so political correctness becomes the quest for using the right word. Right, right. And I mean, sitting around wordsmithing. Right. And I think there are so many times that you see um, LGBTQ folks and folks of color and immigrant immigrants and, and other communities call out the lip service of certain words in like majority mainstream, at least my world, which is primarily, you know, the nonprofit world, which is primarily, you know, leaders of nonprofits being white um, and straight and, and cisgender, et cetera. And so a lot of times, and I think, Currently, right now, you can point to intersectional or intersectionality mm -hmm. as the current quote-unquote buzzword mm -hmm. that as long as we put that in the brochure or on the website, as long as I drop it every three minutes when I talk about this work, I don't actually have to have an intersectional approach mm -hmm. to my work at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not necessarily because someone with privilege is an evil mustache-twirling secret genius of evil proportions, comic book level evil, that they're using that as lip service. But it is the default in the norm, right? It is the default in the norm that it's just going to be easier and people tend to go with what's easier mm -hmm. to change the language and not actually change the behavior, the system, and, and all these other things that, as you said, words are a symbol of. Mm -hmm. So for me, I try hard in my work and in my life to both give words and language the import that they have. They're absolutely at the core and center of these issues, right? The it's just a joke around sexism or racism is one of the more harmful things I think there is. And it's something I address a lot, especially around street harassment or sexual harassment. It's mm -hmm. just a joke. I meant it as a compliment, right? All these mm -hmm. things that the roles that language plays to promote instead of prevent different forms of gender violence and oppression. Um, and at the same time, we can't overvalue it, like you said, because that leads to just lip service and causes more harm than good and, and can really make a difference. I, I talk a lot about domestic violence and the language around domestic violence. Why do we have the term domestic violence, right? Why is that that phrase exist? People are tend to overfocus on like, wait, is this domestic violence or isn't it? And I'm like, well, don't get too caught up in what we call it. And at the same time, there is a reason we have a term for it. It's because it's a certain type of violence that tends to happen at epidemic levels in a certain context, in a certain pattern, in a certain way. And it's a shared experience by unfortunately millions of, of women and men and teens and other folks. And so again, it's for me, I think it's balancing out the importance of language and it plays. And like technology and other things, I think language is a double-edged sword. It's a tool that's neutral in and of itself. It's how we use it, right? Mm -hmm. It can be a, a you know, not to oversimplify it, but language can be a tool for good or it can be a tool for violence and oppression. And very often it's both. So how do we keep working to try and tip the scales? And I, I think holding ourselves accountable for trying to be as respectful and inclusive as possible with language, but then also getting the language up and backing it up, like you said, with the work, with the actual mm -hmm. change. With our uh, actions. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. that's where I think language can be more harmful than good is if it's not backed up, whether that's through ignorance or evil intent, um, really doesn't matter in terms of potential harm caused. Oh, wait, I can't read my t-shirt. That's the whole point of wearing a t-shirt. It's, um, 
It's great, and I saw it, but this is only audio. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> oh my god! Could you enlighten our audience as to what your T-shirt says? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking, Peter. Um, my T-shirt says "Men Challenging," which is a campaign that I started after twenty-plus years doing work helping communities engage men and boys and ending gender violence and preventing gender violence. I started a campaign of my own to do more of the same called Men Challenging. And for this really incredible, and I'm so excited to be here, audio podcast, I decided to wear that t-shirt for everybody. <laughs> well, um, that had an impact on me. <laughs> well, they, mission accomplished. Thank you. And it's actually a hashtag, Men Challenging. So, Yes, we weren't sure in the beginning if it was going to be a hashtag for a campaign or if it was going to be a nonprofit or if it was going to be a campaign, etc. cetera. Um, it's now kind of a combination of all of those, but we do have a website and a couple of fundraising campaigns going on right now. So you can find it at menchallenging.org, all one word. What's the mission of Men's Challenging? Uh, the goal of Men's Challenging is to get to take advantage in a good, happy way of the fact that globally and in the US, there are more men and boys and people in general than ever before that are learning about and thinking critically about and aware of these ideas of gender, gender roles and gender norms and what different societies and cultures say it means to be a man or to act like a lady or a woman or all these different gender pieces. And then to, to give men and boys especially, but it's for everybody, regardless of gender, um, to give folks an opportunity to learn more, but also to do something concrete. So our goal is to create simple, easy actions that men, boys, and everyone else can take to both support survivors of gender-based violence, be that domestic violence, sexual violence, et cetera, um, and also to prevent it. So taking actions to prevent this violence from happening in the first place in their communities, in their schools, their families, et cetera and also to support survivors. Uh, so the primary way we do that is through fundraising. We play with a lot of different fun fundraising ideas and ways of raising money, 100% of which goes directly to survivors in more marginalized and, and more kind of under-resourced communities. So right now we're supporting two great organizations. One is called Forge, and uh, they do work specifically with the transgender community including working with trans survivors of gender violence. The other organization is DWAVE, D-W-A-V-E, Deaf World Against Violence Everywhere, mm -hmm. which does similar work with survivors from the deaf and hard of hearing community. And two organizations that do incredible work that because of the communities they work with tend to have less access to regular larger funding streams. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where we wanted to kind of focus is, is those places that work with individuals and communities that have less resources. And we want men to put the money where their mouth is and really step up and address this issue. So that's been challenging in a large nutshell. Short answer is men and boys challenging gender violence. Joe, I wanna thank you for coming to visit us here on the Peer Podcast. Do you have any closing thoughts for us today? Um, I hope everyone's doing all right during these uh, pandemic-y, quarantine-y times. Um, I hope everyone's doing the best they can and is as safe and healthy as possible. Um, I would love if folks listening to this were interested in learning more about how men and boys can, can and must play a role in addressing gender violence. And I'm really excited for these kind of conversations that are kind of cross-issue. Um, 
and open and honest, good, bad, and ugly um, from folks with privilege. Because I think it's, I think, I know for me, our conversations like this and others we've had just one-on-one -on -one have been a huge help to me both personally and professionally. And I'm hoping that, um, I would imagine that it's not just the two of us that get something out of it. So I'm hoping that all the success, the, the rousing success of the podcast and the work you do um, can get out there. And people that need to hear this and be part of this network uh, are going to benefit from it. I'm pretty sure they will. Thank you, Joe. This has been a conversation with Joe Samalin on the Peer Podcast, a production of Peer Media Network. All rights reserved. I'm Peter DiCaprio. Thanks for listening.